Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, everyone. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. For this episode of Talk Justice, we're going to be sharing remarks that John Grisham gave at a recent LSC forum on access to justice. John Grisham is, of course, the author of best-selling novels, 47 consecutive bestsellers to be exact. But he doesn't just write about lawyers. He's been a lawyer himself. And as you'll hear, he has some great stories about starting out as a young lawyer in Mississippi. The stories are not only entertaining, but they also touch on aspects of civil injustice, injustice that unfortunately is still very relevant today. Grisham is a dedicated supporter of legal aid. He previously spoke at an LSC forum in 2018, and he was kind to come back and join us again just last month. He also serves on LSC's Leaders Council, which works to raise public awareness of the current crisis in civil justice. You'll shortly hear Grisham explain a bit how he first met LSC's board chair, John Levy, and became involved with LSC. Grisham is also a prominent advocate for criminal justice reform, frequently speaking publicly about wrongful conviction and serving on the board of directors for both the Innocence Project and Centurion Ministries. If you've had the pleasure of reading some of Grisham's books, you know that access to justice is a major theme in his work. His stories frequently depict how poverty imperils a person's ability or a family's ability to receive a fair shake from the legal system. Before I hand it over to Grisham, I want to read you a short excerpt from his 2020 thriller, A Time for Mercy. When I first heard this passage a year or so ago, I was listening to the book on tape. I thought, what a great depiction of the intersection of poverty and injustice. I even thought at the time it would be a good segue into a podcast. In A Time for Mercy, a woman whose son stands accused of murder tells his court-appointed lawyer, Jake Brigance, about the daily struggles her family faces, struggles that are familiar to many low-income American families. The mother says, it's awful. You work hard at a crap job, and when you finally get paid, there's a yellow notice in the envelope. Some credit card company or finance company or crooked used car dealer has snagged your paycheck and cut it in half. It's just awful. That's the way I live, Jake. Always climbing, climbing a mountain, trying to keep food on the table, and there's always somebody after me. Writing mean letters, hiring collection lawyers, threatening. Somebody's always threatening. I don't mind working hard, but I'm just trying to stay afloat. To survive, I can't even think about getting ahead. John Grisham is a two-time winner of the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction and was honored with the Library of Congress Creative Achievement Award for Fiction. My sincere thanks to Mr. Grisham for his support of LSE and access to justice in America. 
thanks also to John Levy for um, the invitation to be here. John has asked me to be here before. It's always, when he calls, I always say, I'm not going to do it. Whatever he wants me to do, I'm not going to do it, okay? I'm just not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say yes to John and I always show up. He's very hard to say no to John Levy. Uh, we go back some 15 years uh, when we met each other, working on a case for a young man in Oklahoma. His name is Tommy. That's all I'll say. Tommy was wrongfully convicted when he was a young man, very young, uh, for a murder he knew nothing about. And he is from Ada, Oklahoma. And during, that, during the mid-1980s in Ada, there were six wrongful convictions in a five-year period, all caused by the same cops and the same prosecutor, the same authorities. And of those six men, four, four received the death penalty, including Tommy originally, initially got the death penalty. Uh, all five have been exonerated. They're all out, except for Tommy. I wrote about him. Uh, there was a wonderful Netflix documentary about Tommy's case. We have successfully brought a lot of attention to the case, and John Levy brought the incredible uh, talents and um, assets and facilities of his law firm to the table. And the legal work has been brilliant and timely, and we continue to do so, but we just can't get him out. He's been there for 38 years. He went in when he was 20, and uh, we're still fighting away. Sometimes we wonder, is he ever going to get out? But we, we're still fighting. So John, I've known John for a long time now. We've had a lot of wonderful conversations. He called in 2000 and nine to tell me he had just been nominated by President Obama to chair the Legal Services Corporation. And I said, I thought you guys were friends. <laughs> what kind of appointment is that? And he said, no, I'm very excited about it. Uh, John, as you know, goes way back with uh, Barack Obama because Barack, as a Harvard Law student, interned in Sidley Austin's office in Chicago, I think 1988, 1989. At the time, there was a young associate at Sidley named uh, Michelle Robinson, first-year associate, and she met Barack in the offices there in Chicago. John Levy claims he made the introduction, which he probably did, uh, but I've met other Sidley lawyers over the years, and they all claim to have made the introduction, so you don't know who to believe. But as a senior partner, though, John gets to claim authority for the introductions. He, he's the top man, but um, he was very excited about the job. He called a few years later, uh, when the next administration came in and said, well, we've got some bad news. Uh, we've seen our budget for next year. It is zero. No funding for legal aid. He said, he said I'm finally out of work. I've got to find another job or go back to Chicago. Uh, but John uh, typically uh, rolled up his sleeves, went to work, uh, kept legal aid afloat, the LSC, and not only kept the budget, but got an increase every year since he has been the chairman. So it's remarkable what he has done in his present position, I asked him all ago, is he ever going to get rid of the job? And he says he, he has a plan, but he, typical John, he's, uh, he loves what he does. I learned a long time ago he has a passion for fairness, equality, and justice, and a really, really nasty distaste for injustice. It's just not fair, and he doesn't like it. He keeps fighting. I have a long affinity with legal aid because it goes back to when I finished law school at Ole Miss some 42 years ago, I inadvertently became a legal aid lawyer. I didn't have a job. 
And I went back to my hometown, small town in Mississippi, without a job. I wasn't worried about that. There were some plenty of lawyers in town, but most of them were not very good. And I didn't want to join their firms. So I borrowed $1,000 from my father. I found this tiny office space. I put my name on the door, hung out my shingle, and I declared myself ready to sue. I was, you know, the new hired gun in town with no clients. And that should be against the law in every state. Uh, you should not be allowed to do that. You should have to intern somewhere and work and learn something before you go out and force yourself on the public. I had no clients for a long time or a few. Back in those days, it's probably the same way now, when a new lawyer came to town, the old lawyers, of course, would push all the crap in his direction. All the crazy cases, and every town's got crazy people who want to sue everybody. All the uh, bizarre people who hang around law offices, they all come to see the new guy. And I was kind of working my way through all the nut jobs, local nut jobs in town, when one day a lady came in, and she was in tears. And she had a piece of paper, and she was holding it, and she was very upset. I looked at it, it was an eviction notice. And her name was Irene, and she said, I, you know, I've got to talk to somebody. I'm about to, they're about to kick me out of my trailer. She lived in a part of town, at the edge of town, that was not that nice. It was mainly uh, trailers, mobile homes. I knew the area well. There are a lot of those in the Deep South. And she had been there for a long time. These are the working poor. Uh, they all had jobs, two or three jobs, uh, part-time jobs, low-wage jobs. But the people worked, and they registered. They voted. They, they were, you know, they tried their best, but it was hard to get ahead where they lived, and she was being evicted. And she said, I got to talk to you. And I said, well, you know, the lady was in tears. I said, sure, let's talk. So I, we, I made a pot of coffee. I had nothing else to do. So we, we sat down, we talked for a long time, and she told me her story of, of the landlord, the slumlord, the guy who owned all these trailers, was a notorious character in town and not very well regarded. And she said, I, I, can't, I can't lose my trailer. I've been there for years. I'm behind on the rent, but I always catch up. And I, I can't, you got to stop it. Court was that afternoon at three o'clock. City court was at three o'clock in the afternoon that day. And I said, I had great sympathy for her. I, had, I couldn't just, you know, make her go away. I said, okay, I'll be there. Uh, I'll come to court. We'll, we'll get through this. And she left me her eviction notice and she left the, uh, the two-page lease that the slumlord had, you know, put together for all of his tenants. And I flipped through it, and I realized the guy had made a fatal mistake. It was a 30-day notice was required before he could evict anybody, and only 24 days had run. The guy had gotten in a hurry, and we had him dead cold. Okay? So I went to court, and as I walked in the courtroom, I, I realized there were quite a few people there. Word had spread that she had a lawyer. There were three other people being evicted at the same time, her neighbors. And she <laughs> introduced me to them outside the courtroom and said, Would you be their lawyer too? And I said, why not? You know, why not? I'm, I'm, I'm getting paid. Why not? I'll do all four of them. So um, they call the case, and the slumlord walks up, tough guy, and I walked up to the courtroom. The judge was a lawyer down the street, part-time city judge. Back then, we had to kind of pass the robe around every few months. Everybody had to serve as judge. I knew the guy well. He called the case, and we walked up, and the slumlord saw Irene walk up with a lawyer, me. And... The guy was, you know, obviously surprised to see one of his tenants with a real lawyer. And we started arguing the case. And I said, Judge, there's a fatal mistake here. Uh, he has not waited 30 days. We showed the paperwork. It was clear. There was no doubt about it. 
And I had the courtroom was kind of crowded with her neighbors. And I said, yeah, furthermore, Judge, this lease is defective. The property is in bad shape. Uh, I'm going to file a lawsuit tomorrow in county court suing this guy for $10,000 for damages and another $10,000 for punitive, just for the hell of it. I made a big deal, a $20,000 lawsuit. The trailer wasn't worth $10,000, but it was a big deal, and people really, you know, thought that was exciting. Uh, the judge dismissed all four eviction notices. We all left in triumphant, and the next morning I had more clients than I could ever dream of. Uh, <laughs> word spread that this guy, would, this guy would take your case for free, wouldn't charge you anything. So I had clients, uh, I had clients coming by for every, uh, every kind of legal problem you can imagine, and they all needed, most of them needed help. It was a collection of, you know, bad debt collection, hospital bills, garnishments, uh, the stuff that read a while ago that all comes from real life experiences. And, and although I had plenty of clients, I was getting further and further behind with my bills. Uh, luckily, about a year later, there was a, luckily, I'll say it wasn't, it was terrible fortune, but there was a, there was a horrible car crash and two people were killed and they lived in the trailer park. And I managed to fight off all the ambulance chasers <laughs> and keep the case. The um, driver who caused the wreck was uh, intoxicated driving a company vehicle. There was a ton of insurance. And we settled the case quickly. They started calling me uh, Lawyer Bono. That was my nickname around the trailer park. Lawyer Bono. They didn't know what pro bono. I had to explain what pro bono meant. And, but they knew it was free. That's all they cared about. And so I was Lawyer Bono. And um, that reputation spread. But when I settled a car wreck, Lawyer Bono finally got paid. And a few years later, when I ran for office to the state legislature in Mississippi, I campaigned in the trailer park, and there were, you know, Grisham signs everywhere, and we got a lot of votes out of the trailer park, and I, I won the election. That case proved to me, though, the power of a license to practice law when it's used to help people. It's astonishing what happens when you're a lawyer and you take a case person who cannot afford to pay you, or somebody who's not supposed to have a lawyer, and you pick up the phone, or you show up at court with them, and everything changes. The whole game changes. They suddenly they have respect, they get a fair hearing. There aren't enough of us doing that, even back then. We didn't have a good legal aid system back then. But the power of a law license is incredible when it's used to help people. For that reason, I've always been involved in legal aid. After about 10 years of practicing law, I changed careers and, and I started writing books, and I didn't have to practice law anymore. Uh, but I always had this affinity for legal aid. And we moved to Charlottesville about 30 years ago, and we're blessed in Charlottesville to have a very, very strong, active legal aid group, the uh, Legal Aid Justice Center, LAJC. It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of um, lawyers who are really protective of clients and looking for looking for bad behavior from corporations, from bad guys, from governmental agencies. Uh, as an example, during COVID, so many people were out of work. People could not get their benefits. Uh, they needed to buy food and pay rent and pay car notes and mortgages and, and take care of their kids. People were losing all those things. They were losing children because they couldn't pay child support because the benefits were tied up in the bureaucracy. The state's computer system is horribly outdated. There were not enough people to process the claims. And our legal aid filed a billion-dollar lawsuit. There were a billion dollars in, in the system. And a federal judge got mad through the book at the state. The money got released, and 180,000 Virginians 
got their unemployment benefits almost overnight because of legal aid. That's the type of stuff our legal aid system does. They just, uh, thank you, they just closed down a, uh, a, a, an ICE detention center in Farmville, Virginia. Uh, it was grossly overcrowded. Nobody was convicted of a crime there. These were not criminals, they were migrants. Uh, undocumented workers trying to get in and legal aid took them to court. Our biggest victory a few years ago was a class action lawsuit filed against the state of Virginia. Virginia, like 43 other states, if you get court fines and, and court costs for whatever your crime is, they yank your driver's license as punishment. Isn't that brilliant to make matters even worse? And LAJC said this is unconstitutional, took it to court, fought it in federal court for a few years, and won a landmark decision that said this is unconstitutional. That's the kind of legal aid we have in central Virginia. It's, it's very active, it's very effective, and it's always looking for a fight. And I'm happy to, I'm happy to support that. I've supported financially. I've, I've, uh, my wife and I enjoy doing events for legal aid. We're always there supporting people like you who are doing God's work. Thank you, my time's up. Again, my thanks to John Grisham for appearing on today's podcast and for his support of LSC and Access to Justice in America. Thank you in our audience for joining us today and please stay tuned next month for our next Talk Justice podcast. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.